3: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
4: Friday morning, the 24th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, public servants will see their pay increase next year by between 10 and 15%. But this will not be a pay rise. It's pay
0: restoration. It's the reversal of pay cuts uh, that happened uh, over 10 years ago. Uh, And what happened 10, 12 years ago is there are pay cuts across the board in the public sector and those in the highest salaries had the deepest pay cuts for the longest period of time. And this is the last group who are seeing their pay uh, restored. Uh, So it's not a pay increase. It's the reversal of a pay cut and pay restoration. And if it was any other group, that's how you would describe it. Uh, You said they were civil servants. Again, that's not factually correct. Uh, 90% are doctors. Um, They're public servants.
4: Leo Vradker, the Tanisha, was responding to people before Profit TD, Paul Murphy, who wanted to know why some people will see their pay increase by 15, 20, 30 or 40,000 euro next year when Irish households, on the other hand, will be facing into the biggest drops in living standards since the financial crisis in 2008.
0: So if I went with you uh, into a hospital today let's say one of the maternity hospitals around the state, the only person who hasn't had their pay restored is the person who did the C-section at 4 a.m. last night. If I went with you today into one of the busy emergency departments in any of our public hospitals in Ireland, the only person who hasn't had their pay restored is the consultant doing the rounds trying to get patients off trolleys and into beds. And if I went with you into, into Crumlin Children's Hospital just down the road from here and we went into the orthopaedic operating theatre The only person in that theatre who hasn't had their pay restored is the person doing the scoliosis operation. And these are people uh, who um, are hard to recruit and hard to retain and are well sought after around the world. And they're the last people to have their pay restored. And that's what's happening.
4: Let's hear from People Before Profit TD, Paul Murphy now, who joins us on the phone. Good morning, Paul, and thanks for joining us on the programme today. Uh, Why is it you want to permanently cut the pay of these people? morning, Michael. Um,
1: well, because fundamentally we think that we should not be giving um, the equivalent of €60 million euros on an annual basis to people who are already on very high wages. You're talking about the top 1% of people employed in the public sector in terms of wages. Um, very, very substantial I mean, pay increases in anyone else's terms, I think, apart from Leo Varadkar. Um, and we think that Instead of saying to ordinary workers, you have to wait until the budget, we can't do anything about the cost of living uh, crisis, that we should, you know, take action now for ordinary people, as opposed to choosing to give this very substantial amount of money to people who already have a lot
4: of money. Well, anyway, it's not true, though, is it? I, I mean, they're treating uh, these high earners the same way they treated everybody else uh, and in the public service, that is. And uh, As you heard the should say, they're the last ones to have their pay restored. Pay that was cut is now being restored. Uh, and it started uh, I think with uh, lower public servants uh, and uh, made its way up. Uh, the last tranche would have included TDs. Now it's the turn of the hospital consultants and the general secretaries and those who are on very high pay.
1: Yeah, but that's a political choice. Um, like, it is a political choice to say that we are well, going to... Well, it's a pay to,
4: agreement, is it not? Um, it, it,
1: well, it's, it, it's kind of based on a pay agreement, that's true, and then legislation for it.
2: Hmm. But
1: The the doll legislates for these things. I mean, we voted against the legislation when it went through in 2017. Um, and that all could legislate next week the government could bring in a bill to say we're not going to be paying these increases to people on over 150,000 euros we're not going to be increasing the pay of a secretary general mm-hmm. of a department from 210,000 euros to 250,000 euros a year and instead for example we could use that 60 million euros to provide the fuel allowance to an extra 100,000 Yeah, households.
4: but I mean you're making arguments uh, that are not dissimilar to saying I think the minimum wage is too high. Uh, It's an opinion. It is what it is and it's something that's been agreed by government uh, and uh, employers in this sense. uh, I think the trade unions uh, would go back uh, to the emergency legislation and say that the government unilaterally cut their pay but uh, the real situation is uh, that it was agreed to and then came that legislation Uh, but the pay was cut on the basis that it would be restored. This is people's pay. This is what they're entitled to Uh, and you're talking about cutting it because you think they're earning too much uh, that's not in line with normal trade negotiations is it industrial negotiations
1: but these are political choices you know if, if you give 60 million euros to the top one percent of earners then that is money that you will not spend in terms of giving fuel allowance or in terms of giving inflation rate pay increases to ordinary public sector workers i mean if, if you're a you know, low-paid civil servant on 25 to 30,000 euros a year, the government is offering you an additional 1,000 euros as opposed to an additional 40,000 euros. They're asking you to sign up to a pay deal, which will not, it's like a third mm. of what the inflation rate is, So they are asking you effectively to sign up for a pay cut. Mm. We think different political choices should be made, which is not to give more money to the very high earners and instead to seek to protect low and middle income uh, workers who are the ones who are feeling the the hit. I mean, if if you're already on 200,000 euros, you're not struggling with the cost of living crisis let's let's be honest about it, whereas if you're on 30,000 euros or 35 or 40 or 50,000 euros, you obviously are massively struggling with the fuel price increases the grocery price increases, the heating increases, the electricity increases at the moment and we think the political choice should be made to protect those workers as opposed to those who are doing just fine
4: Are they political choices uh, because uh, the politicians were taken out of deciding on public sector pay were they not, so that they couldn't be awarding themselves huge pay increases because I can already see people saying well, in my opinion TDs are paid too much, cut their pay by half or two thirds well, well,
1: what you <laughs> I'd be first in line to vote for that, absolutely. And we're in favour of cutting uh, TD's wages to the average worker's wage, so they actually are in line with the lives of the people that they that they're supposed to uh, represent. Um, but the, the, this but is, don't we this have, this have the Public the Service Pay Commission that decides? But don't we have a, a,
4: don't we have an independent body that looks at this? The Public Service Pay Commission decides what people should be paid in the public service
1: yeah but the, the doll is elected, and the doll is elected to make decisions and all that in turn elects uh, a government and These are political decisions like uh, I don't think it makes sense at all to have people earning over one hundred and fifty thousand euros in the public sector or even in the private sector, mm. either. I think we should be talking in this country as well as increasing the minimum wage. we should be having a maximum uh, wage and uh, reducing inequality and like these, the problem the government has is that these things have come about because of legislation. So, FEMP was used mm. in an extremely draconian way to put a gun to the head of ordinary workers and force them to accept uh, pay cuts. We were opposed to that process, but now the government, but the government is choosing, I chose in 2017 to legislate to give this this you know, big big pay mm. increases to those at the very very top, and um, we're saying the government should have then, but still can now make an alternative uh, choice, um, and, you know, it, it likes to suggest, oh, our hands are tied and so on, but, of course, the all writes the law, the all can, can write a new law uh, next week.
4: Mm. Uh, if you're going in for a, a very serious operation, some of uh, the procedures that Tanisha was talking about there a few moments ago, you'd be hoping that you'd have the best-skilled pair of hands uh, carrying out that procedure, wouldn't you? You
1: would. Um, And the question is, why do people do what they do in terms of very good doctors, nurses, porters, everyone involved in the
4: health service. Well, they may not have left education until they were nearly 30, half of these people, because that's what it takes to become as skilled as these people are. And they've put the time in, and this is the reward for the effort that they've done and their uh, brilliance uh, in many cases, and how we rely on them and how they can get paid better elsewhere, as Leo Vratka was also saying to you, if you don't pay these people, uh, they'll go elsewhere.
1: What's interesting is that there was a study done by an academic uh, released uh, a couple of months ago about why doctors emigrated to Australia. And the reasons given were not about money. The reasons they gave was because we're overworked in this health service, because of uh, the housing crisis, because of the lack of funding of the health service. And so, like, if you want to retain health professionals, which isn't just consultants, it's also uh, nurses, and everyone else who works in the health service what we need to actually do is invest in building a proper one-tier quality national health service where we don't overwork these people and that does require a kind of progressive income tax system yeah. uh, it requires going after the wealth in the hands of the billionaires who increased their wealth by 16 billion euros in the course of the pandemic in terms of corporation tax um uh, but actually I think that that's the best way to like retain people in the health service is to give people a high quality of life, not overwork them, address the, the housing crisis and address the cost of living crisis. What do you
4: mean the housing crisis? I mean, how does that uh, affect such high earners? Uh, I, I gather the answer is is that it's too expensive, uh, that you can't get the kind of property that you'd hope to get for a million or two million or five million.
1: Yeah, well, what, what happens is that it is, Generally, people emigrate when they're kind of younger and they're on the trajectory towards being on this, this very high uh, earning situation. But they are the kind of people who are affected uh, by the housing crisis. So measures like actual rent controls to bring rent down, investment in a significant way, space. I don't building, think it's about rent
4: controls.
2: I, I, I think uh,
1: you would find it is for no for, for junior, junior uh, I, doctors are facing huge pressures um, and and aren't... I think it's probably got to
4: do with the fact that if you're earning €150,000, you're limited in in the accommodation that you can provide for yourself because it's so expensive to buy here compared to anywhere else.
1: The housing situation is obviously a complete uh, Mm. mess. Um, And that is a driving factor that is driving people uh, out. Mm. Um, We have huge rates of of vacancy. It's in papers today, about 10% vacancy rates across the country. Um, So we, we think, you know, you have to address that by massive investment in building mm. public, social, quality housing for people and rent control. Uh, but controls. you're not
4: talking about people here who are looking for social housing. You're looking for people who'll get a, a bigger house for a, a million euro than the house that they currently get for a million euro or two million euro. Well, I think you're
1: projecting forward for people that are, people with junior doctors aren't on massive, massive uh, money. Um, you know, obviously, consultants, there's consultants on big money, 200,000 euros uh, plus.
4: But yeah. The
2: trajectory of people.
1: And that's that are rated, the
4: people so. that you were talking about uh, who uh, would be getting these increases of 20,000, 30,000 euro next year. Uh, and the Thaunashe was saying if you permanently cut their pay because their pay was cut and now it's being restored, as was agreed. But if you welch on that deal, uh, if you prove to be a bad employer under normal industrial relations, uh, you'll see people despondent and leave and go where they can get the kind of money that they're looking for and, indeed, the bang for the buck, the type of accommodation or whatever it is uh, that uh, they'll be able to spend their money on.
1: But let's match this. Let's say, look, we're not going to be paying people these huge pay increases and people are already well paid, but we are going to commit to actually invest in building a proper national public health service, have people on public-only contracts, don't have people overworked, and we're going to address the cost of living crisis, going to address the the housing crisis. Let's have it as a package of, of measures. And I think the evidence suggests that this idea that people are just going to flood out of the country, we're going to lose all our specialisations and so on, I don't think that's factual.
4: Okay, well I think they're the arguments for and against. Thanks uh, for having them with us on the programme. Uh, this morning, Paul Murphy, people before Property TD for Dublin South Michael
5: Reed on LMFM. I
4: have two stories uh, about uh, electric scooters, uh, I've actually I uh, have millions of stories about e-scooters but two stories from just yesterday uh, that uh, I experienced that. Uh, one uh, was I saw a very, very small child, uh, two, maybe three probably three years of, of age on an e-scooter and I, I just not his dad put him onto the e-scooter and he stood behind him and they whizzed off up and down the path uh, and then against uh, the traffic going in the wrong direction on a one way street and I just hoped nothing happened to that child, no helmets, nothing like that uh, the second story started with a gust of wind, literally, that I felt on my face. Uh, and the next thing was, I heard, sorry, mate. <laughs> and I looked up the street, fair bit up the street at this stage. Uh, and I, there was a young fellow on an e scooter. I'd say he was 14. Sorry, mate, he says. <laughs> uh, didn't expect you to be coming out of that entrance. I just thought, of course you didn't expect me to be coming out of an entrance. How could you? You've no road sense. You're 14 years of age. You What, what would you be anticipating on the roads? Uh, you're, you're not qualified to drive. You've no training. How could anybody expect a child to anticipate if something was coming around the corner or if somebody was coming out of a, a, an entrance or anything like that? But I can tell you one thing for the thing, I got a dreadful fright. I really did. I, I mean, uh, the first thing, I, as I say, was that gust of wind. I felt a breeze on my face as he whizzed past. There was a hair's breadth between us. Uh, I, I really thought, I came very close to being struck by that scooter. Uh, and had I been struck by the scooter, I know that I'd have been on the ground. Uh, and, you know, what happened after that, I, I don't know whether it have hit me head or if I'd uh, been injured in some way. But I definitely got a, an awful fright uh, and I thought that just isn't right. But sorry, mate, he said. Uh, and off he went, uh, up the path, uh, out onto the road, without looking, of course, and thankfully there wasn't a car coming out uh, uh, on the road because he'd have been struck, and God forbid that. But I don't think he he was doing anything wrong, in fact.
6: I proposed in Section 34 of this bill to introduce a new section to the 2004 Act, restricting the sale and supply of e-scooters to people over 16. This measure was made with the intention of reducing the risk of injury to minors from people to use and indeed potential injury caused by minors to pedestrians and other vulnerable road users. However, my department has identified several significant implementation challenges. There is no suitable mechanism to record PPT supply, as vehicles falling into the category do not require registration. Furthermore, it can be expected that many purchases will be private second-hand sales or from websites based outside the EU. Furthermore, there is no licence system proposed for driving an e scooter and no requirement in Ireland to carry proof of age. In light of those factors, I I no longer consider that this provision will be enforceable and consequently it's been withdrawn. I'm suggesting it be withdrawn. It would be similar to the purchase of a bicycle, there there is no age limit at this present time. Yes, we would be looking at guidelines, issuing guidelines and and best practice, but there's no provision where you can regulate sale by age for that type of vehicle. Because these aren't registered vehicles, the license and use of, and and so there's no mechanism, and we don't, in our country, carry identity cards. You can't enforce uh, identification so the policing of this I think is the primary reason why it wouldn't be enforceable and I think introducing law which is not enforceable would, is bad law
4: and That's the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan he was speaking uh, to the Oireachtas Transport Committee. Timmy Dooley is a Fianna Fáil Senator, a member of uh, that committee and he joins us now and a very good morning to you Timmy Dooley and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I- is it right to assume that this means that as this legislation is introduced it will be legal- legally permissible for anyone to ride on a scooter at any age, anywhere?
7: Yeah, good morning, Michael. Um, yeah, I think the Minister has identified there the difficulty and the challenges in addressing what effectively is a relatively new technology when it comes to mobility. Um, I, I wasn't around when the bike was introduced, uh, but I'm sure it produced uh, a significant challenge for people who were used to Prior to that, to just walking, and the comments that you made at the end, at the outset of the programme in relation to someone facing by, um, that still happens uh, with people on bicycles. And yeah, and you have seen the electrification of bicycles now, which again don't, don't have to be licensed, and in fact you'd scarcely know that they were electrified, with the, with the way the battery packs are installed in them, and they can get up to significant speeds. And I think the the scooter is just another. Another version, if you want, of that, but you're right, and and you I mean you made a very valid point about the parent or what appeared to be a parent and a three year old child that somebody had observed on a scooter like like there's no accounting for stupidity um and there's no uh, act of the arrapus that will ever prevent um the actions of those who who are downright stupid in terms of the way they they care for themselves and others that's always going to happen um we see that in relation to you know the laws notwithstanding that are there in relation to drunk driving people mm. will still take enormous chances and will end up either killing somebody uh, or or being maybe you know killing themselves mm. so so that's going to happen at a certain level what we have to try to do i think with the scooters recognizing that the, the you know they will evolve and develop i think we'll have to ensure that the the, the top speed of them is reduced or governed to a particular limit I mean, some of the bigger ones can attain speeds of, I don't know, maybe north of 20 miles per hour. That's too fast in a crowded, pedestrianised area. Um, And I think there will have to be some rules and regulations there in relation to, um, as I said, the the top speed. But the Minister identified. Uh, uh, I think the Minister was talking
4: about a top speed of 25 kilometres an hour and a, a maximum weight of 25 kilos.
7: That's right, but 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 um, I think as as these machines develop and the technologies develop, there will be faster ones. There are faster ones available mm. at the minute. Twenty-five, I think you know, it's going to be. I, I would have preferred it to be twenty. I think that's about the speed you would attain on a good bike. Um,
4: but they'll be illegal. I think the minister was saying if they be. go over twenty-five, because um, they uh, would be uh, considered under European law uh, yes, to be that's correct.
7: To have a different status yeah. and, and therefore be, be be seen as a mechanically propelled yes. uh, rather than the sort of the the lower sco- scooter which w- would be akin to being um, personally propelled or whatever. But I think for, yeah. to, you do well now to propel uh, anything uh, of a scooter range uh, mm. up to 25 without with, with, without additional power. But mm. yeah, no, I would have liked to have seen a lower limit there. But look, we're not going to fall out over five. Over over five kilometers, what, mm. what it's, what it, but but twenty five
4: kilometers is very fast.
7: It's a nice clip, yeah, absolutely. No, you it's. Know, it's, it's, a, it's and a, I mean, you
4: can't get on a Honda fifty without training, right. with, with, without a helmet. Um,
7: you absolutely. know, I think the issue with the Honda fifty uh, machines, generally, which is wh- which is what the these pieces of kit uh, have caused the greatest challenge because they're small and light, and it's just just propelling the human without adding to the. Yeah. The mass of what's travelling. I mean, as you know, if you're on something heavy, even travelling at a low speed, you you have a you have a considerable amount of, of density moving forward and, and it can it can be quite an impact if it hits. Whereas these are so light they don't add to the body mm. weight than a very small amount except in, in, in rare circumstances where yeah. the, where the bigger ones are.
4: But if you take that experience that I had yesterday, I, I mean yeah that 14 year old boy I think he was probably a very nice young boy he didn't really mean any harm and that's why he said sorry mate I think he got an awful fright himself uh, he didn't expect me to be there as I say you couldn't yeah. expect a child to anticipate something like that they're not trained to uh, travel on the roads like that they're not trained to drive uh, but there was also the risks to himself H- had he hit me he could have been hurt very seriously but not only that to avoid me he just swerved straight out onto the road and it was only a godsend that there wasn't a car coming up road.
7: No, absolutely. And I suppose the point I would make, and I, we, you and I had this just discussion before, the difference between what, what you described, you described it very well, it's, an, it's, it's, it's something that has happened to myself on more than one occasion in relation to a cyclist. And it may have been, in, 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 and I, I would take the responsibility in relation to my own case, sometimes we, uh, or I would um, maybe drift uh, on a footpath, or out onto a cycle, lane without noticing, or you are crossing a road or whatever? Then you know there's traffic, and you're we're all observing the traffic. And the next thing, somebody powers by on a on a on a race bike at at very considerable speeds. And you know, even I noticed for people open doors of cars because people have to get out of their cars. But cyclists clip along very close to the edge of where cars are parked, and you know that is a hazard. But it's it's like many other hazards that exist on a daily basis. Uh, you you, you tend to be aware of them and accidents will surely happen but how you regulate or how you prevent in law or try to prevent in law such a circumstances is as the Minister rightly Mm. identified effectively an impossibility and we're unfortunately in in the position that we know there's a problem and there's, there's, there are certain restrictions you can put in place mm. but you can't enforce them. It's no different to the guidelines that have recently been announced and I remember making the point I think with yourself or somebody else at the time in relation to the distance that we need to give cyclists on the road the metre or two metres above a certain mm. speed. I mean in principle it's really important to get it out there because it does flag to all of us who drive uh, that we've got to be more mindful of cyclists, but in terms of who absolutely, could enforce yeah. the, the, mm. the, 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 the width separation, I mm. I, I, I doubt I, I doubt there's a case. Yes, mm. that has gotten through the courts.
4: Yeah, uh, oh, no, is, no, no I, will there be one? But you no. shouldn't you shouldn't get on a bicycle right. without a helmet, uh, and you sh- and really, you, sh- you shouldn't get on a skateboard without a, a helmet, or a,
7: and I think the real the real the, I mean the real plus out of all of this is that you're having that conversation, and hopefully others uh, in positions of, of of authority like yourself. That we'll have that discussion. People will listen to it, and it's about it'll be about the education piece. And uh, like, I, I know schools is, is a place for, for for academic learning, but we learn so much about life as well. Uh, and I know there are programs in schools that are done with transition year students around helping them to prepare for their driving course, et cetera. I, I think it would be no harm, uh, even in national school, if there was some kind of a, pro- a program, maybe on an ad hoc basis. Some some schools would do it better than others. Uh, that would, would teach some of the etiquette uh, associated with cycling mm. uh, and scooters generally. And I think when that, when that debate happens, mm. you're, you're, you're going to see perhaps those that will wish to be more responsible, at least knowing what the rules are okay. rather than jumping up not And,
4: and, and listen, I, I know you're a fan of e-scooters. You'd uh, support their use. Uh, but uh, for the sake of trying to see where we're going with this, uh, I, I, is it that there's two options? One, that you ban them outright, an outright ban, which you'd oppose, uh, uh, or that you live with them and you hope to educate people to use them better?
7: Well, it's a mix of both. I, I, I think the notion of banning anything in today's society of, of a technology uh, of computer gaming, mm-hmm. of, of uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, it, it, I mean, it's where things are going. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's an advancement. So in we're technology. not going
4: to ban them. So, so if we don't ban them. It's
7: impossible. Impossible yeah. in terms of the supply, because we don't, mm. we don't control the yeah. supply chain And as I identified, mm. people import, they get them through Amazon, they get them through for eBay forever. Mm. So they're going to be there. And I don't think we want our guards running around after kids grabbing scooters off them. So it, 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 it's it, from a practical point of view, it's, they're there, they're a challenge. And now how do we educate um, our, our people uh, to use them in a way that, that's fair to everybody, that people understand the their responsibilities. We all like to talk about our rights, but mm. we, with every right there's a responsibility, and the responsibility must be uh, in the usage of these vehicles. It is challenging, and you know, I'm sure you and I will be talking again, and we'll be talking about yeah. somebody who was injured or injured. Oh, yeah, else. That, that's the real fear, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but yeah. it happens on bicycles. Yeah, I know. It yeah. happens yeah. on skateboards, as you say. It, it mm. will happen. Um, but the more we talk about it, the more we try to educate, the more we try to inform, that we, we, we learn to live uh, in conjunction with these technologies. Like there are there are significant benefits if we can mm. reduce the necessity for the next generation to purchase a car. or or to eliminate or reduce the amount of carbon fuels that are used in in moving people around, well then, that will have a significant positive
4: impact. I know know you always laugh when I I say it, but I like making you laugh, so I'll say it uh, again. (laughs) I I, I think the future probably will be one-way streets uh, with lanes for cars, bicycles and e-scooters and so on, and maybe there's a solution in that. I think you're not wrong there. I think you're not wrong, (laughs) Michael. Okay, we'll leave it there, Senator. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Fianna Fáil, Senator Timmy Dooley is a member of uh, the Rock. Transport Committee.
5: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Well,
4: we've had a, a few people in touch with us today, and thanks to anybody who's uh, taken the time uh, to give us a call, WhatsApp, text, or email, or contact us through the social media sites uh, as usual. Uh, always great to be hearing from so many people. We had uh, a call come to us uh, this morning from Raid who's in Drodan. and she says it, it seems to her that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer in this country. Do people at the top end of the pay scale in the public sector, those people? People around these very big salaries really need this raise. Probably not. However, those low-paid jobs are desperate and can't afford to pay their bills. They're all working hard, says Mraid. Thanks, as I say, for your call to the programme. Uh, another call then from Denise, who's in Drogheda, and Denise says she loves walking, but she's petrified uh, when she's on footpaths these days because of e-scooters. She was walking along the Feckin Road last week, just past Harmony Heights and out of nowhere. Uh, an e-scooter whizzed by... Uh, She said she'd no warning. It gave her an awful fright. And if I'd stepped the wrong way, I could have been hit. It's a constant worry now. No such thing as a a relaxing walk anymore. There needs to be lanes put in place. And I think for them and cyclists, uh, that will uh, never happen. I, I wonder who is liable if you're injured by one of these things. Thanks indeed, uh, Denise. Have you been waved off the footpath <laughs> when, when fellows come up? Bicycles as well these days. Timmy Dooley is right. There's an awful lot of fellows uh, and girls, uh, people uh, riding bicycles and e-scooters on footpaths these days, but when they're, when they're approaching you, they, they often wave at you. Would you get out of the way? <laughs> um, it's uh, an interesting world we live in. Uh, it's the same way that they walk in front of cars these days. A lot, of, An awful lot of people walk in front of cars or if they've walked out, they don't seem to move. Uh, they think, oh, well, he's looking at me and, and he'll stop. Let's hope they're right. Uh, we've uh, somebody, James, that draw it. James, I, I'm, I'm not sure. It's a, I don't think it's a, a typo. I think I just don't know what a, a noble is. He says, You can be fined for having a noble on your bicycle. What's that? Uh, I don't know, but I think we understand the point anyway, because he goes on to say, uh, you, you can be fine for that, but you can't stop people on electric scooters Give me a break. Uh, James is a very avid cyclist. Uh, thanks uh, for that. Uh, somebody else says, e-scooters are a disaster. I was nearly knocked down on the footpath. They're so dangerous. That's Deirdre and Kells. Thanks, Deirdre. Uh, as always, um, somebody else saying, could you please ask the HSE rep about money paid out in compensation over the last 10 years? How much related to big, busy, hospitals and how much related to unsafe hospitals like Navin. Uh, Thank you uh, indeed. Uh, I'm not sure uh, that that information would be to hand Uh, you know the notice that we have here but uh we will be talking to Colm henry who's uh the chief medical officer um clinical officer chief clinical officer for uh the hse uh, oh no bell <laughs> sorry <laughs> i've just seen james's text come in <laughs> um we'll be talking with column henry about navin uh, and why it's not safe and why it has to be closed uh, after 10 o'clock this morning stay with us uh, james says you you can be fined for not having a bell for having no bell <laughs> Not a noble. <laughs> okay, thanks, James. Uh, appreciate you getting back to me. I thought there was something on bicycles these days that, uh, <laughs> you know, were after my time, if you like. Tony and Loud says, uh, can you tell. Uh, Paul Murphy, that he's free to give back half his generous salary every month if it's playing on his conscience. I, I think he do, does. Uh, I think uh, uh, he lives off the average industrial wage or less. Uh, I, I, I know that he, he doesn't take all of his salary or that he donates a, a good portion of his salary. Uh, and that's why he was saying uh, in his interview this morning, Tony, that he'd be in favour of cutting TDs paid by half or more. Uh, Paddy Duffy says he'd uh, agree with paying the top management and banking peanuts. Uh, because no matter what they get paid, we get monkeys, but not the likes of medical consultants who, if we're in need of their services, we really need the best. So restore their pay by all means. Thank you indeed, uh, Paddy Duffy, for that. Uh, What's then uh, from somebody who says, Michael, try walking down Boyle O'Reilly with a, a buggy and guys coming up behind you on the path on these scooters the traffic there is so bad and if you move the wrong way you're under a bus it's so dangerous mags thank you indeed for your whatsapp message to the program this morning another uh, WhatsApp message now uh, about uh, the public sector pay restoration Uh, I don't object to doctors and nurses getting a wage rise because they work long hours and very hard but not our politicians who give nothing but lip service thank you indeed uh, for that I think the politicians would argue that they work very hard and they work very long hours and in fairness to them whatever uh, about how hard they work uh, they certainly do work long hours Uh, try visit a politician's house when they come home later at night and listen to the phones ring and uh, the expectation that people have of them to be there at the drop of a hat. All right, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us so far today. Michael Reid on LMFM. Now legislation will come before uh, the Dáil in uh, the coming weeks to prevent and combat violence against women, to protect victims and to punish offenders. Uh, A third national strategy on domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. The
5: strategy will be published with an implementation plan so it's not that we would publish the strategy and then have to work it out. What we have now and what is complete and we were just in the final stages in terms of signing off Uh, on the very last elements that we are talking in the next week, two weeks, uh, essentially, of being published, um, is a very detailed implementation plan with dates, with actions, departments as who are carrying out those actions, uh, funding and all of that. So it will be very clearly set out. And I will take into account all of the things that you've mentioned, the audit, the restructuring that's needed, uh, I suppose the drive that we need to to implement those changes. Uh, But I think what's different about this is that it's not a strategy without implementation plan it will have all of that together so i appreciate it's taken longer than people would like it is a whole of government strategy there's quite a lot of departments involved uh, and i think every, everybody would appreciate that when you have so many departments involved uh, but also when you go out to consultation a number of times with the public and others uh, because you want to get it right it, it does unfortunately delay things so uh, it will be published very soon uh, as i said in a matter of literally weeks absolutely before the doll is finished but probably in the next two
4: weeks. Yes, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, speaking in uh, the Dáil this week. Let's speak uh, to Fianna Fáil, Senator Erin McGrathen, uh, who's on uh, the line. And a very good morning to you, Senator. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You want us to follow the British lead the lead, uh, taken in England, uh, Clare's Law, it's called there, uh, following uh, the death of a woman named Claire Wood, uh, and introduce a domestic violence register.
8: Good morning Michael Ian, thanks for having me on. And I, as you you played a clip of the minister there. And it is really good news that we're we're getting that third strategy published soon. And more importantly, as the minister said, it's more it's not only about the publish publish publication of the strategy, it's about the implementation of the strategy and getting the getting results delivered and looking after women and girls and, and indeed all genders that need protection in our state. But back to what you were saying there and indeed Claire's law. And Fianna Fáil launched our domestic violence and gender-based violence um, policy paper last Wednesday with Jason Poole, who might have you might have heard in the news during the week. uh, um, His sister was sadly brutally murdered by her partner, um, I think, two years ago at this stage. And what he was highlighting was the importance of of knowing what your partner or your potential partner has done in the past and if that partner had been had been um, a domestic abuser um, then they would have been on a register and they would have been able to go to the guards and able to find out whether that man or woman indeed was, um, had, had had abused someone in the past. Mm. And, I think and Jennifer
4: it, Poole um, could be with us today because this man absolutely. Gavin Murphy uh, attacked somebody else previous to knowing Jennifer and he attacked her mother and he produced a, a knife but that wouldn't have been known to Jennifer at least not necessarily so.
8: Absolutely and that is that is just the, uh, a perfect example of a desperate case that we should have Jennifer and Jennifer should be with her so, her two kids today um, and we shouldn't we shouldn't even know jennifer's name, and if we had that domestic and like in the u k as you said domestic violence disclosure scheme that's what they call it in Clare's law and it, it, it does allow to disclose that information to a victim or a potential victim of domestic violence about their partner or indeed their ex partner their abusive or or violent offending, so it's really important, and it's not that you know there would be a you know, a, a free for all that mm. there would be. You know, that you go in and and snoop. You could say about any about any person. It's it. There is. You know, in in the UK, there is two elements to the scheme, and it's the right to ask and the right to know. So the, if uh, an individual came, came into a guard station and asked about uh, about about their partner or their ex partner, mm. or indeed a sister or a friend or a mother or could could go in and talk mm. about their friends their friend's partner the guard the guardie, like in the UK the police would would evaluate would look at the, mm. would look at their system and see well does this warrant is this warranted um so it's not a it's not a free for all it's not right. a it's not a uh, you know a, 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 a an invasion
4: of yeah, folklore, uh, you're, you're not going p- to p- place notices in the newspapers or on Facebook Absolutely. or whatever the case may be, but, but if you if, if you take the English model uh, and had that been in place here, uh, this fella, Gavin Murphy, would have been on a domestic violence register because yeah. he had attacked somebody yes, and he had attacked her mother with a, a knife and he had gone to prison. Uh, and when he came out of prison and then set up or entered into a new relationship with Jennifer, uh, the guardy could have, have looked at in a situation, would have known about it because he'd be on this register and there would be obviously some formal process in monitoring him and they could have gone to Jennifer and said, do you know that this man was in prison for very serious violence against another woman and her mother?
8: Yes, I think it is a very credible and a very worthwhile piece of piece of work that we could do in this state. Um, and as you said, the right to ask and the right to know. So, guardy could have approached Jennifer and said, Jennifer, do you know your partner has done this in the past? Mm. You are potentially at risk. Knowledge is power, Michael, and mm. we all... And it's up to
4: that. you to do what you will with that knowledge, but exactly. at least if you know what the situation is, uh, then you have uh, the power to act in whatever way you choose to
8: absolutely and i think that is that is if you are an adult and you can decide whether you want to stay with the person whether you want to or whether you, you don't want to enter or continue with that relationship it's all up to you and um, i think it's a very very um a very worthwhile piece of work and myself and my fianna Fáil colleagues will be working will, 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 are continuing working on this register and um, are working towards getting this register and a similar piece of legislation like Claire, like claire's law in the uk um, we often because of our similar common law legal systems often can translate UK law into an Irish system you know very well obviously with different with with, with in, in different ways but we can do this and i think we very, very it's a very worthwhile thing and we can, i think we can do it we should do it um, and i'll be working that we working towards um, actually carrying it out and make sure we do do it
4: yeah, there seems to be an awful lot of it. Is it as widespread uh, as we might think, or is it just that we're talking about it more so these days?
8: What do you mean, Mike? domestic, domestic
4: violence? violence, yeah.
8: I think, thankfully, we have more. We have far more acknowledgement of what it is. We know what a domestic mm. violence is. Domestic violence has always happened. You know, the closed curtains, and you might. You know, I know myself growing up. You'd hear up. Oh, you know, he. You'd hear stories but nothing was ever done because we didn't have words for it because, you know, the home was a was a was a very private place. Women are now more empowered, they have more places to go. We have fantastic services here in Loud. Obviously we need more than dark women's aid, draw out a women's aid, do incredible work. Um, every single day of the week. They're, sa- they're actually saving lives, Michael. Um, there, are, the there are eight counties in Ireland that have no refuge. The Minister for Housing, Darrell O'Brien, has changed changed systems within his his department to enable local, local authorities to be able to build refuges quicker, get funding down from the department quicker. Things are moving along. There has always been domestic violence. I think with COVID, it has been on the increase. Um, but also the reporting is on the increase, and that is a good thing. That women are are empowered; they feel that there are there are places to go for them, and there is the the reporting. Yes, it's desperate to see that there are increases, and people are you know are being violently attacked in their homes and abused in their homes, but it is a good thing that they are able to report it and that there is action being taken and there are safe places for them to go and that there are supports there. So I think there, always, there is always room for improvement and the third, the third strategy that the Minister has spoken about will will move towards there. The recognition of this is a, is a huge problem within our society and indeed globally is important as well. And I think we, we are moving towards a culture change, Michael, and we spoke about this, myself and yourself have spoken about this quite regularly. Um, and I think the more, the more, you know, radio shows like yourself that speak about this, to understand, and that for everyone to understand, because unless mm. you are a victim of domestic violence, you mightn't understand how difficult it is. You might think, well, why don't they leave? But they can't just leave, us. it's not simple. You know, so things are, none of these things are simple. Yeah, well, you're living in fear. Yeah, the more, more, speak, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the more the you speak thing. about yeah. it, and it's yeah. really great that you mm. you do speak about it so often, Michael, on shows like this, and indeed on, on, on national national radios and national TV. So the more we speak about it, the more awareness is. Yeah. I would just put it out there. Mm. If anyone is is suffering from it, or anyone is living in fear, there can talk women's aid, draw out women's aid. Mm. Safe, the Safe Ireland website has huge amount of okay. information
4: and yeah. help out there. I will give uh, the phone number for Dundalk Women's Aid uh, for that matter Erin uh, and you know you can just call this number and talk to somebody uh, if you have something to talk about. It doesn't mean you have to go down to the Garda station or go to court or anything like that. You can have a conversation and uh, speak to somebody who understands the situation you're in and it, it might help and you might decide to do something after that and you might not but the number is 42 933 244 that's 42 three two 244 uh, it's not something uh, that hasn't happened before and these people have a lot of experience in it if people do want to speak to somebody Aaron, we we'll leave it there for the moment thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always on the programme that's uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Aaron McGreehan Uh, we've uh, a couple of messages uh, coming to us uh, that that are similar Uh, one from Baz Wiseman in Balbriggan, asking if it is legal or not for an adult to be driving an electric scooter with two children on board I observe this quite regularly says uh, Baz Uh, thanks Baz, I'm not sure that it is illegal Uh, this (laughs) I really am not sure that it is illegal um, is it illegal for a man to have two children on a bicycle? Uh, because it seems to be pretty much uh, the same law. Uh, Jerry Floyd uh, saying something similar about a, a Vespa-type scooter, father steering in front, child standing handlebars, two big bags of shopping uh, behind them. The father behind the father, two young children uh, and behind them. The mother with bags of shopping in each hand, and behind her, two older children, one holding a baby. Something he saw some time ago. I can't even imagine it, Jerry. (laughs) I lost count of the amount of people uh, you were talking about in all of that. But thank you uh, indeed uh, for making contact. If you have uh, been in touch with us today, good to hear from you as always.
5: Michael Michael Reed
3: on LMFM. LMFM. Navin is an acute general hospital with 62 medical beds. It doesn't provide paediatric or obstetric care. It doesn't provide an acute surgical service. Ambulances bypassed the emergency department for several conditions that can't be catered for at the hospital. As part of the reconfiguration the HSE is looking to implement, it is proposing investment, more patient care um, in Navan. However, for any proposal to be considered, we would need to be satisfied on several levels. And I am not satisfied, and government is not satisfied, and members of the Oireachtas are not satisfied. And I want to acknowledge that. This includes legitimate questions raised by members of the Oireachtas on issues including access to the Medical Assessment Unit, capacity of the National Ambulance Service, local access to GPs, emergency and other resources, in Drogheda and other hospitals, the use of of, uh, injury units and more. All of these issues have to be addressed. And they have not been addressed, to my satisfaction, To the government's satisfaction, and I dare say, to this house's satisfaction. So we are all agreed on that.
4: That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. Now let's speak uh, to the HSE's Chief Clinical Officer, Dr. Colum Henry. A very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, The Minister,
2: morning, uh, Michael, and thank you, thank you for having me on.
4: The minister had a a lot to say there, and he appears to agree with the HSE's proposal that the emergency department in Navan should close because of the risk to patients. Uh, but he also seems to be of the view that you haven't done the necessary groundwork to make that happen.
2: Uh, Michael, yes, uh, we, 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 we've been working at this for some time. This issue isn't new, as people will know. It's uh, been concern expressed back to 2015 by the clinicians in Avon, by clinicians in Drogheda, over the safety of the emergency department in terms of its accepting all patients with all complexity, including those who are very unstable and require specialist care. This issue isn't new, um, and we know from other hospitals for the same safety issues prevailed that uh, diverting patients to the right hospital first time, those with complex or specialist needs, be it heart attack, stroke or trauma, and those patients already bypassing them, bringing them to the right hospital first time is the right thing to give them the best outcome. It's what we would want for our relatives, and it's what the people with need would want in the event that they're seriously ill or require complex care.
4: But the Minister is saying you haven't put the necessary structures in place to make this happen. He's saying that you're going to uh, replace one risk by uh, putting people at risk in a, a different way. Is the minister wrong?
2: Well, looking at the risks first, Michael, uh, to me, uh, these aren't parallel opposing risks where one cancels out another. There's a very serious risk that the emergency department, as it currently presents itself to people, to say we can take all patients with all complexity and we we'll give the equivalent outcomes to another hospital that has a much broader in range of specialties, be they in trauma, be they in, in, in cardiac issues, be they in sepsis, be they in people who require resuscitation. It's a real Immediate risk in those patients presenting to that hospital that must be addressed. Of course, when we look at the small number of patients who will then by day be diverted to hospitals with a much greater capacity of specialists, with established teams and all those interdependent services that people need the surgeons, the in, in wider, broader intensive care and so on there are capacity issues to be addressed in those hospitals. And we've been working on those withdrawal to hospital, we've been working on those of National Ambulance Service. Uh, the Minister is absolutely correct that we need to uh, ensure not just the public representatives and through them the people of need, that we will be able to uh, uh, implement what we believe be a significant patient safety issue and the answer to it, that we will be able to implement it safely by diverting a small number of patients to another hospital right place, first time, where they can get better outcomes.
4: Right. Uh, We've two opposing opinions here and two significant players. The HSE, which is made up of yourself as uh, the Chief Clinical Officer and other uh, colleagues of yours and the medical expertise that you bring to this uh, and then on the other hand we have the Minister for Health who's saying right decision, wrong time you need to do some more before you go ahead uh, who has ultimate authority in all of this?
2: Michael I wouldn't see these opposing decisions what everybody's agreed on and I think it's important for people to realise this is that uh, the GPs in, that, in the Mead area uh, to the consultants in Drogheda Hospital the consultants in in, in Navan Hospital and our national leads or experts in intensive care, emergency care, medicine care have known for some years and accept now that bringing those who are critically ill or unstable? A small number per day, of five, six, seven per day, to, to an Avon Hospital is not good for them and doesn't produce the best outcomes. And you know, I haven't okay. seen anybody come out with, with an opinion saying that is that that risk isn't there. That's okay. Can I ask you the same opinion.
4: question a, a different way? Can the minister keep the emergency department open when you want it closed, or can you close it when the minister wants it to remain open?
2: Uh, no, um, Minister, as I understand from Minister Michael, what he's saying is he wants to see the concerns of, of what we plan to implement addressed. And those concerns relate to the capacity in Drada Hospital and other hospitals who will take these small number of patients The concerns regarding the capacity of the ambulance service. And we, put, we have a, 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 a mm. an additional ambulance capacity, Michael, I'll just take a second to explain, of advanced paramedics, a rapid response vehicle, people who will see Triage, assess those who are severely ill, resuscitate them and direct them to be brought to the right hospital for the uh, first time. We have that ready to go. OK, it's our job I,
4: I, w- I want to come back to that uh, and, I, and I think it's very important that you do address that. Uh, but can you tell me, who who has the ultimate uh, authority here? Uh,
2: it, it, ultimately very clear the Minister has authority to direct the HSE as to what services could be stood up or stood down. We in the HSC, and I include the broad HSE, not just the leadership positions, mm. okay. but consultants and medical leaders and GPs have a responsibility, a very serious responsibility, uh, to point patient safety issues and to be honest with people and say that if you're critically ill or if you're unstable, You should not be going to the emergency department.
4: How how unsafe is it? Uh, How unsafe is it? Uh, Would it be tenable for you to stay in your position if you knew that there was such a great risk to patient safety in a hospital that you have ultimate responsibility for?
2: Well, Mike, uh, look, remove me from the equation. It's not, it's not about me or about me seeing my position. Uh, a, for the, for the great majority of care in hospital provides excellent care. As the, mm. what people might not realise, we often argue about health care issues over specialist services, the great majority of healthcare, Michael, takes place in the community, and even the great majority of hospital care is relatively simple and and episodic as we call it. It It's one episode of pneumonia or heart Mm. failure or asthma, and those cases will continue to present. Is it
4: possible, though, that the shortcomings in the emergency department could result in an unnecessary death?
2: Um, Certainly, we would have serious concerns that it's uh, unstable, or seriously ill patient, And those concerns have already been expressed by the clinicians in Avon Hospital, going back some time now, Michael, that those patients who are unstable being brought to this hospital are being brought to the wrong hospital. For those patients with relatively straightforward issues that are, that are stable, that are not likely to need ventilation and not likely to rely on an intensive care unit that's the smallest in the country and ventilates only 50 patients per year. Uh, for those small number of patients, it is not good for them. It is not in their interests.
4: is it possible that it could result in an unnecessary death Uh, I mean that's obviously the extreme example and I don't want to scaremonger but I I think people want to know exactly why it is that the HSE wants to close this uh, emergency department
2: Yes, when we call, say patient safety issues, Mike, we mean the outcomes are either not good at the moment or in danger. Of the, and that, that means somebody having more, on, on, on one end of the scale, having more protracted, complicated uh, medical admission or somebody who then requires transfer, but that transfer to a special service is delayed. And of course, that goes up to and including uh, somebody at risk of, of dying, uh, should they have an extreme, unstable complicated condition that requires specialist input from a whole team in a really, really resourced hospital that is a team of intensive care consultants, teams of backup services and have established expertise in dealing with higher volumes of these complex patients.
4: Okay, can I ask you about the backup services? Uh, because any doc is uh, to reduce its out of our services uh, to patients and will provide face-to-face cover up until half 10 on weekends and 10 on weekdays and 10 o'clock at weekends. After that, there'll be no in-person appointments and home visits. Uh, And this uh, apparently is because of a shortage of doctors uh, and underfunding. Uh, Pauline Tully asked uh, the Tawnister about this yesterday. And if you bear with me for one moment, Dr Colin Henry, we could hear what the Tawnister had to say.
0: In the distant past, I used to work in North East, Dr. on call, seeing patients um, in an old prefab right across from the um, emergency department in Navan Hospital, and also the cottage in Drada. And it was very good service, I have to say, and uh, I think as much as possible, these services should operate 24-7 uh, for reasons that we'll all understand. Um, I understand that this is principally a funding issue, um, although the availability of doctors is an issue too, um, and we have asked uh, Minister of Health to engage on this with the HSC and see if it can be resolved.
4: OK, so that feeds into the other problem about... Uh, how do you get referred to the medical assessment unit if you need a GP referral? Your GP uh, goes home at six o'clock and the northeast doctor and call won't be there, apparently.
2: Mike, very valid question. I've listened to Tanisha closely there in, in, in your recording there. Since he worked in Navin Hospital, indeed since I worked in junior hospital and I'm older than him, uh, the complexity of care has, has, is unrecognisable uh, from years ago. And, and, and the expectations corresponding to that complex. People expect if they have a heart attack, they'll go directly to a heart attack centre. If they have a stroke, they'll go directly to a stroke centre. If there's significant trauma, that they'll go directly to a major trauma centre and not be parked somewhere that doesn't have the range of specialties. With regard to the question about the out-of-Irish doctors, I, I see the ICG, the mead faculty of GPs have said in their correspondence to us that they're confident Now, work is needed with them to make sure that we follow through in this, but they're confident, I'm quoting from their letter, that in our daytime general practice, as well as in our work as GPs, at North East Doctor and Call out-of-Irish, we mm. shall be able to provide the referrals necessary to best serve our citizens who need hospitalisation.
4: Okay, that's a statement on behalf of three GPs, isn't it?
2: Uh, No, that's on behalf uh, of the Faculty of General Practitioners in County Need.
4: Three GPs?
2: It, well, it, the 3 GPs represent the
4: faculty, Michael. Mm. I, I know, but uh, there's uh, uh, a lot of doctors who have concern uh, who are not part of that faculty. Uh, and uh, Alona Duffy, the director of uh, the Northeast Doctor on call, has serious concerns about how all of this is going to work. And we've heard from others for that matter. Uh, and I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. I'm just making the point that experts differ.
2: No, Michael. Absolutely, and these concerns absolutely valid. We we you know, we we've had to, we, we always have to learn as we go along from what we call reconfiguration, especially when it comes to emergency services. People are worried, and they're right to be worried. They're wondering what will happen uh, in the event that they get mm-hmm. ill and they'll be brought to the right place. But. What I'm saying to you this morning, Michael, is this, the, to me the primary safety issue here is that we're willfully bringing complex, seriously ill patients. We are doing this now mm. to a hospital that doesn't have the capacity to deal with them. And let me tell you, Michael, some years ago, uh, when, in, in a previous job I had nationally, we, we discovered that we were being people that we knew had hip fractures to hospitals that didn't have an orthopaedic service. We were doing that willfully and knowingly. Mm. And their treatment was being delayed. They were lying, waiting, waiting for transfer, some, sometimes for days. And you don't need to be a doctor or nurse to understand that the outcomes are just not going to be as good. If you're sitting waiting to get the right service because you're brought to the wrong place for the first time. So, that to me, that's the primary safety issue here. And when you decide what you need to do about it, which is identify those patients, identify them in the field, identify okay. them when they get sick, and bring them to the right place full time, then you have to address what are the consequences of this decision? How do I deal then with the pressures that may emerge in the NAS? Or the pressures that emerge in Androheda, or the pressures that emerge in general practice. We don't deal with patient safety issues, Michael, as, hmm. as opposing issues that cancel each other out. That's not the way it works.
4: Will any 999 calls go to Naven? Will any uh, ambulances take patients to Navan?
2: Well, what would happen, Michael, is one of the plans we have in place is an advanced paramedic with a rapid response vehicle, and it's ready to go. Uh, whenever we get all these plans approved and we have assured mm-hmm. people to the level of, of confidence they need. And what they would do is, they would identify what we call category 1 and category 2 patients. These are patients who are extremely unstable and either have arrests or are in danger mm-hmm. of deteriorating suddenly needing ventilation. If they're not in those categories, they can ring the medical assessment unit, the, ma- medic, the paramedic, discuss it with the medical assessment unit and arrange for the ambulance yep. to go directly to Navan hospital. So it's not, it, it, it's, so much of this is clinical judgment that it's hard to tease out mm-hmm. uh, and I appreciate that you your your own uh, insight into this, it's hard to tease out in in an interview. So much of this is clinical judgment, relying on the expertise and and experience of the people in the field who are used to seeing patients gauging their Mm -hmm. level of illness and making a decision as to where they should go.
4: Okay, but if an ambulance takes a Category 1 patient to Drogheda and spends an hour, maybe two hours uh, in the process of doing that, uh, does that mean that a Category 2 patient will be left waiting for a very long time for anybody to arrive to take them to Navin?
2: Michael, obviously we, we know no, no needs uh, to uh, to we, we know there are capacity issues in unscheduled care in emergency departments across the country. But there's a travelling
4: time as well, is the point of putting to you. Of course.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But, but first, the advanced paramedic in the rapid response vehicle will be, that advanced paramedic does what it says in the box, but he or she is a trained in assessment, in resuscitation, in triage, in keeping the patient safe, bringing them to the right hospital the first time. What emergency departments do, even when they're under huge pressure, God knows they've been under a lot of pressure in recent years, particularly with the COVID pandemic, is they will triage patients in arrival, and those who are most critically ill and most unstable will bypass the others who are less critically ill, mm. who, who are less time dependent. So it's part of the fabric and the, and the work, uh, the, the, the way uh, the, the way that emergency departments work is they identify how seriously ill people are, are at the point of arrival and escalate their care if needs be.
4: Okay. Um, Can I just ask you about aftercare and outpatient uh, appointments? um, Because uh, if, let's say, you're taken from Kells to Drogheda with a a perforated bowel uh, and a surgeon performs a a colectomy or or something like that on you, um, you're going to be sick for some time to come uh, and you'll need follow-up care and outpatient appointments. um, But the hospital in Drogheda is not aligned with the hospital in Navan Yes. So you'll have to go to draw the to stay under the care of your consultant, that's going to be a real problem for people isn't it
2: yeah, Michael good question but let me assure your listeners this, the communication between doctors and specialists and specialists and, and mainstream hospital consultants and between specialists and hospital consultants and GPs is part of medical communication which has been established long before uh, reconfiguration of hospitals or long before the, any of these issues emerged it's for specialist service for somebody who might go for example if you take cardiac uh, high end cardiac surgery in the matter of hospitals in James's hospital it may be that the cardiothoracic surgeon might want to see the person mm. once off for the first time, or they may discharge them back to the referring consultant in a regional hospital, or they may discharge them directly to general practice. But as part of the, the way doctors work together is they decide an aftercare, whether a specialist in need, and that goes back, as you point out, to it may be in some cases going back to the original operating surgeon, or whether the care can be handed over or handed back to a more general consultant a regional hospital or indeed a general practice. That's part of the way doctors have always worked.
4: Okay. Um, just to conclude, if uh, I can, um, is there anything that would uh, change the situation in your mind uh, if uh, the government was to employ um, additional staff, uh, emergency consultants and so on for the hospital in Navan. or if 10,000 or 20,000 people talk to the streets uh, to insist that the government does something like that. Would that change the safety concerns that you have about Navan at this stage?
2: Well, Michael, I can't... You know, it is the, as I said, the Minister's entitled to make decisions. He's the Minister of Health. He's accountable to the dial, and he has to listen to all the different voices concerning this. As I said, we have a job to identify safety concerns that people would expect us then to act upon them, to plan against them, to say where can we get the best outcomes. I have heard the arguments for the new hospital. I do think, um, and uh, if I could say, Michael, it needs a dose of reality because we just don't build... Uh, a, it's not just a question of dropping in new appointments. It's building departments with expertise with supports, with all the interdependent services, with all the experience that accrued over a number of years. Take intensive care units to build a high-end intensive care unit with a large number of beds, large number of consultants. It's not something you do overnight. And in the meantime, you don't gamble with the lives of patients by, by placing a bet on something that might or might not emerge after a number of years as you try to build such departments from scratch.
4: OK, well, look, thank you very much indeed uh, for taking the time to be with us uh, this morning. Thank it's much appreciated. You. That's Dr Colm Henry, who's uh, the Chief Clinical Officer with uh, the HSE. Michael,
5: Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. FM.
4: Do you remember Champagne Charlie? Uh, he was the Minister for Finance uh, back in uh, the 90s, uh, Charlie McCreevy when the country was awash with money. You'd see him on the front of uh, the newspapers popping bottles of champagne. Uh, different uh, type of champagne Charlie being reported on uh, today in a very dramatic story uh, that involves uh, the Kinahans. Let's speak uh, to Stephen Brain, Crime Editor with uh, the Irish Sun. Good morning to you Stephen, thank you Good indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. H- have you ever uh, come a- across liquid cocaine uh, in champagne bottles before?
9: No I've never come across uh, a garden investigation of, of this nature. Um, We saw last year when um, charcoal was brought into uh, Dublin port and there was obviously cocaine infused within the the batches of charcoal. But this is something different as well. and I think it shows the extent to which serious organised criminal gangs and transnational criminal gangs such as the the Kinnaham outfit are capable of. It shows that despite the sanctions that were levelled against them in April by the U.S. Treasury Department and their law enforcement partners that the Kennehan guy are still very much active. But I think on this occasion, the number of searches that took place over two days this week, Wednesday Mm -hmm. and Thursday, shows that it was a significant blow to their operation, but it also shows how South America and Ireland are intrinsically linked when it comes to the supply of drugs into this country.
4: Mm -hmm. Uh, There was obviously a lot of intelligence uh, behind uh, these raids. Mm -hmm. Uh, Seven people arrested, two million euro worth of of drugs and 500,000 euro in cash confiscated. Uh, A a blow to the Guinehans despite uh, the billions uh, that they're worth.
9: Well, It always is and their whole business model is based on uh, drugs and bringing weapons into the country and that's what they've been doing for over 20 years. Obviously you know, the spotlight has been on them in recent years because of the kinahan and Hutch feud. A lot of the senior members are now serving time even the leadership of that organisation are now in Dubai and they've had their assets frozen as well but they do still have people within Ireland, different sales operating and in relation to the, the operation this week you had um, uh, a Kinnahan sub-cell based in West Dublin and it was the belief of the Guardian that, that that location was used to store drugs as a distribution hub for drugs once they came into Ireland to be sent around different parts of the country, also in the city centre as well and indeed you had two individuals who were arrested from the north inner city which was greatly affected by the kinahan gang during the feud and, and people lost their lives also remaining part of the organisation but there are still mm. people out there who are willing uh, to work for the kinahan gang because of the resources that they have at their disposal
4: okay uh, and one one of the gang's still on the loose is he
9: yes uh, during one of the, the raids in west Dublin uh, one of the individuals uh, managed to get away and um, he jumped into the, the liffey there and he escaped and he is still on the run so uh, that, he is still outstanding so the guards are looking for him but he could be anywhere at this moment in time
4: okay and someone else jumped into a river
9: yes that, that was that there were two two individuals who jumped into river the, the individual who they're still looking for that's one of them so he he is still uh, on the run at the moment you know the guards are are actively looking for him so uh, it shows you that it was a big operation you know there mm. were different operations taking place on Wednesday at different locations but you know during one of those operations one of the individuals managed to escape
4: Okay, and what about uh, this champagne, Charlie? Uh, how does that work? Do you drink it? or uh, Because it's liquid cocaine, is it? Or is it champagne it's, and cocaine?
9: No, it's just a liquid form of cocaine. So it's a, li- it's a form of cocaine, um, which, which you, you would need a specialist to try. And um, It's infused, the cocaine is infused into uh, a liquid form. And, you know, once that is then sent across um, from South America to Ireland, so it's disguised as wine, it's resealed. So it is as well. It's disguised as champagne, and you know when they when that arrives here uh, in Ireland, you know, obviously you would need someone with a chemical background who was able to you know withdraw the cocaine in the liquid format and then put it into the, the powder and then re- reproduce it. So it was part of a whole process where the, of the. The, the eventual outcome would be, you know, the powder form of cocaine, which could be sold on the market, but it had to be taken from the liquid, which was in the, the bottles.
4: Okay, so that's just a way of transporting it, and when it's sold on the street, it would be powder, is it? You wouldn't be buying bottles yeah. of liquid uh, and drinking them, as the case may be.
9: No, it's, mm. it's, just, it's just another way of smuggling and, and something that they've used in the past. But one of the, the first times it's been used in Ireland, and again, it's another way the criminal gangs as they try and adapt to you know different styles mm. and different strategies
4: yeah the criminal gangs and their scientists uh, their lab technicians and that sort of thing
9: yeah well, it's the same as the co- the, the, the 35 million worth of cocaine that well, was recovered the last year yeah. mm. in the charcoal so you would have needed somebody with a specialist background mm. on how to get the cocaine and to withdraw it from the, uh, the, the charcoal again okay. that's not someone who's going to stand on the street corner selling drugs and prescription pills, this is someone who would have to have a, a specialist knowledge and we've seen that in South America mm. where the cartels there uh,
4: professionals yeah. working for them. Breaking bad stuff I suppose. Alright Stephen, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, as always for joining us. Very dramatic stuff. Uh, Stephen Breen uh, is uh, the crime editor with the Irish Sun. Thanks to Rose who's been WhatsApping us saying I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the hospital in Navan. Does 10,000 people uh, do, do, does their say not count Uh, if there's a health risk where is uh, the health and safety officer I have the greatest respect for Navin upgrade the hospital uh, and make it a top hospital again says Navin Um, we'd Carmel Macdonald in touch with us Carmel has been in touch with us regularly about The hospital, and she says, We've known from reports for many years that Meath needs a regional hospital, the population now above 220,000. Why has the HSE not developed the proposed regional hospital to meet the actual need? Uh, It's a a very valid point, uh, and one that I had intended to raise. Uh, with uh, column Henry on the programme uh, this morning because uh, the population growth in me is second only to Roscommon uh, according to the preliminary census yesterday uh, and uh, is increasing at a rapid rate uh, close on 14% 12% I think how will an already overstretched and insufficient number of GPs meet the demand for referral to an MAU asks Carmel she also says worry patients will bypass and turn up at a, a different hospital so definitely not just 10% to Drogheda and 90% remaining in Navin says Carmel thank you indeed for your message again Carmel
5: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM,
4: LMFM. And Let's talk about uh, the Wild West of uh, banking. Uh, that's the banking sector in uh, the country that we live in and uh, the 96.7 million euro fine that was handed down to the AIB group yesterday. This is for overcharging. Uh, almost 13,000 customers uh, who should have been on Tracker Mortgages. Parik Kassan is a financial advisor and has worked with uh, many people in this situation over the years and many years at that. Uh, very good morning to you, you Porik, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, what did you make of uh, the decision of the central bank yesterday?
7: Um, I suppose it's a, culmin- a culmination of um, a huge body of work in terms of investigation. Uh, it's been going on for a long time now. Um, the numbers are staggering. and To be blunt, Michael, they're um, alarming. And um, But I suppose I'd make people aware that behind every one of those numbers of accounts affected over 13,000 is an individual or a family that were affected by a level of overcharging at a time when economically the country was in a very tough place Contributed to by, in in no small means, the very same banks that that Mm. were then overcharging their customers, Mm. and also having been bailed out by the taxpayer.
4: Yeah, sixty-four billion, wasn't it? I I can't remember. Was it thirteen billion or something like that that went into AIB?
7: it's it's, uh, it's over the 20, with no, there no, are different no, numbers, no. and then there's so many numbers relating to all of this, Michael, it's hard to remember. Yeah, almost. no, I know, and, and it
4: goes back a long time, and that's part of the point, isn't it, because the regulator was warned about this 13 years ago, the regulator is the central bank, uh, and what system of regulation was it, in place, <laughs> what role did the central bank have in this?
7: I mean, there's, there's absolutely uh, a part of the delay, or the, the lack of um, proper investigation, however, I mean, one of the things the central bank uh, principles were in force at the time. The central consumer protection code, its first line on that is act that the banks or any regulated entity acts honestly, fairly, and professionally in the best interests of its customers. And there was none of that here. Um, it didn't operate another one with due skill, care, and in diligence in the best interests of customers. Again, so at a time when the banks needed to survive, they put their own interests ahead of their customers, and that where the wrong started culminating from and then it was everything to take as many people out of the tracker market and what happened then was ECB rates started decreasing, uh, ironically now starting to increase and when rates should have been falling for a lot of people, they were actually in fact increasing because they were on a different rate type. Mm. So at a time when people were struggling financially and could have availed of these lower rates, which would have brought a very welcome relief in terms of the cost of their mortgages. Um, The opposite was happening, and it has led to some of the things that you saw the most severe being the loss of a home, which is unfathomable for people to understand because the relationship of Irish people with their properties and homes there's so much involved then in, in, in realising that the reason you lost your property or your home wasn't your fault, that it was yeah. actually at the door of the bank that you had the mortgage from.
4: Yeah, uh, it, it's beyond belief because people couldn't afford the repayments uh, and had their homes repossessed. 21 families. It, it can, can, can anybody put a, a price uh, on what it cost any of those families?
7: No, and I think um, uh, even though money is at the core of everything here, both in the fines, there's a huge difference between the fine levels and the compensation levels and so forth. But you cannot undo the harm, the hurt, the scar that is there from somebody losing their home. While we have looked at recreation of home ownership for some of those, many of those people who lost their homes actually immigrated and are creating a home in another part of the world. And there goes the fallout effect of that where grandparents don't see grandchildren and so forth. So it literally, Michael, reached Mm. everywhere. And I said before in one of the presentations to the Eroctis, the tentacles of this octopus reached a lot further than even people understood. And I would believe that even people don't understand even today because before you lose a home, the journey to that position is making every effort to make ends meet, to keep the home. Then you go to your family for help everybody becomes involved and then the last action is the loss of the property or the giving up of the couple to say we can't keep going then to get a letter to say it wasn't actually your fault it was the cause of somebody doing the wrong created and manifested so many aspects in terms of oh. um, trying to undo the anger the couples might have had between themselves and the blame game that went on it just reached everywhere, Michael, and it, it's mm. quite difficult for people to understand it. And it was actually even a challenge to myself to try and understand what people, what, what happened to people when they got the letter to say, oops, sorry about that, we overcharged you.
4: Right. Uh, and when you say it was because people did wrong, uh, was it that individuals knowingly made decisions that put people into these situations?
7: Um, that's a difficult one to call, Michael. And, and if it was a straight answer, I would give it to you because it, to understand what a, what a tracker mortgage was—the the old ad was there—I don't know what a tracker mortgage is. On the bus, yeah. That became a deb- oh. the guy on the bus. That became a debatable issue, and that's one where I challenged that a bank would would have read it one way. But if they were thinking from their customers' perspective, they should have read it the other way, and that's probably the best way to explain it. It was okay to read it, but they read it with their interests only at in mind, and and so if Michael Rees had fixed his rate and had previously been on a had been on a tracker rate, at the end of the fixed rate period, he didn't get offered a tracker. That was written nowhere before Michael fixed, and that's what I had been arguing. Why didn't you tell him before he fixed? By the way, Michael, you are losing your tracker option here if you do fix. That's where it started to, to manifest and culminate into the issue that it became. There was, of course, plenty of argument put forward, and one of the difficulties for AIB that I had always said was the reluctance and the resistance to look at it from the customer's perspective ended up that the matter went down for a lot longer than it needed to.
4: Okay, um, but is the fine sufficient, or should individuals have been held to account?
7: Um, Well, the the, the process of holding individuals to account, I mean, if it happened right now today, a lot of the individuals that would have been at the the director level or the executive level have all gone from the banks. I mean, they've all fished around or they've changed. So the people that are there today are absolutely left with trying to handle and deal with this thing as best they can. When it comes to the level of the fine and the report that came out yesterday, one of the consistent reactions I have from the customers affected is it re ignites the anger and the frustrations and the the angst they had in finding out in the first place the fine is of no relevance whatsoever to any of the affected customers however the fine does reflect the seriousness of the aspect of it um with regard to the compensationary levels that were paid out people were entitled to bring an appeal and so forth to try and present their case and see where they're entitled to further compensation because defining compensation in this, Michael, is almost impossible, particularly when it comes to loss of home ownership. While it is addressed with a sum of money in varying degrees depending on the cases, it never actually deals with the full fallout effects, particularly particularly those misfortunes that lost their homes.
4: Yeah, you know, there's certain things that you just can't put a price on. Porik, we have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on today. You're podcast. very welcome. Thank you. That's uh, Porik Kassan, financial advisor, who brings our programme uh, to its conclusion for today and indeed uh, for this week. Hope you have a nice weekend and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye.
3: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.